0: As our children head toward the back there to go to Children's Church, let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time now to open the scripture and to let your word speak to our lives. We know your spirit is present in this place and he will take your word now and pierce it into the deepest part of our minds and hearts. And we know your word is living and active And so we pray, Lord, that we might hear what you would say to us, and that having heard, we might be obedient to you. So you lead us, teach us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, Lord, and help us to follow you in the way that you lead. Bless our children and those who are leading them in Children's Church, and we pray your will be done now in these moments, for we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's turn to Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We have been going through Philippians verse by verse, and we come to chapter 2, the first four verses. And of course, leading up to next week, we will be looking at one of the great and uh, deep passages in all of Scripture in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. But the context of that passage that talks about the mind that was in Christ that caused him to be willing to come into this world and to be willing to give himself as a sacrifice for all of us, the context of that is what Paul says in these first four verses. Because actually, him talking about Christ was an illustration of how he wants us to be and how we can have unity as the people of God. Now, the Bible doesn't say we have to be uniform. It doesn't say we have to be exactly the same because we're, we're different in personality. We're different in experience and in background. We have different likes and dislikes. But what the Bible does urge, God wants us to have unity as his people, unity around the gospel and the heart of our faith, and unity as we serve and as we work together. One old-timer said you can take two cats and tie their tails together and throw them over a clothesline, and you have, you have union, but you don't have unity. And you can just think about that image in your mind as we go through the service here this morning. Uh, some churches become like that. They're almost like two cats that have been tied together, and they're... they They have union, but there's not a lot of unity. And that doesn't do much for the kingdom of God. We are to have unity in spirit together as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to do what he has called us to do. Look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. And Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then, verse 5, which we'll look at and following next week, says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who? And then it goes on to give that great theological description. Of Jesus Christ and what he he did when he came and emptied himself and gave his life for us but I hope you see that this passage we look at today is what leads into that illustration of how Jesus was and what we're called to be as his people it's God's will that God's people have unity as we follow and serve Christ but Why is that important? What is the motivation for that? And how can it be accomplished? Paul was apparently writing to this church. This was a great church. But even great churches sometimes have some difficulty with people not getting along. You see that in the Corinthian church. Uh, They had a lot of problems. But here this church was a great church But they had some problems, too. If you look over in chapter 4, verse 2 of Philippians, and this may be why God inspired Paul to write about this in chapter 2. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He calls out these two people by name in his letter. And he's imploring that they get on the same page, and that they be of the same mind. Now, we have no idea what was going on that caused Paul to say that. We don't know what the problem was between those two people. But I hope that gives you encouragement that here 2,000 years later, uh, when there are some difficulties sometimes within a local church, including our church, because we're all human beings just like they were in the early church, There can sometimes be some disunity, and Paul is writing to them, and he is imploring them to not let that take over, to be of the same mind. And that mind is the mind of Christ that he describes in the verses we'll look at next week and following. But go back to chapter 2 now, and I think he gives us some clear direction as to why it's important that we have unity And what is the method that that can be achieved? Now, these things don't neatly fit into these boxes. And that's the trouble when you try to to make an outline and you try to squeeze something into an outline. Uh, I'm going to give you four things that he says here that I've put under the heading of motive, but actually in some ways they also become the method as well. By method that we'll look at later, I'm saying there are some actions that we have to take. There are some things we have to do if unity is going to prevail. But understanding that there can really be no unity apart from Jesus Christ in us. He then is both the motivation and he is what makes it possible for us to have unity. But look here beginning in verse 1, he uses four conditional statements here. Many translations translate it with if. If, he says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love. Four times he uses this word if. And in the Greek, in the Greek language, which was the original language of the New Testament, they had different ways of using the word if If didn't always mean, well, we don't know whether this is true or not. In fact, this is a first class conditional sentence in the Greek, which means really the word since. So some of your translations may even say that. Since there is consolation in Christ. Since there is comfort of love. Paul is not questioning whether these things exist. He is saying based on the consolation of Christ, the comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit, this is where this unity then can flow. It is the motivation for us to want to be unified as we follow Jesus Christ. Since the Lord encourages us. And so the first of these motives is the Lord Jesus himself. Everything we do, in fact, ought to go back to the Lord Jesus, right? And so uh, if you wonder, well, why is it important for us to have unity as the people of God? Because we want to honor Jesus Christ. And he's not honored when there is uh, fighting and strife and division. That doesn't honor him. And as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to want to honor him more than anything else. And so if for no other reason as to why we ought to be willing to do all that we can for there to be a a sense of unity of purpose and spirit in this church or in any church, it ought to be because of the Lord Jesus himself. If there is any consolation in Christ, you see, Jesus Christ himself who lives in us. He's the one that brings encouragement. He's the one who consoles us. He is the one for whom we live and we serve. And so first and foremost, our motivation for wanting to follow his direction and be unified together. It shouldn't be because of our congregation itself or because of the denomination that we're a part of. It's because of Jesus. That's why we ought to want to work together and strive together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first reason is the most important reason of all, the Lord that we have in common. And whatever differences we may have of opinion on on whatever subject you can bring up, and I'm not talking about core theological things, we have to have that in common, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Christ is the only way of salvation. We have to be unified around that core faith, the faith that we talked about last week. But on other things, things that are not key to the gospel, we can look beyond those things because we have the same Lord and we are wanting to honor Him and bring people to faith in Him. And then the love of Christ is mentioned here. If there's any consolation in Christ, you have received Christ into your life. You have been forgiven. You have received the consolation of Christ into your soul and spirit. You're a part of his family. If any comfort of love, well, what kind of love is he talking about? The love of Christ. The love of Jesus Christ that we have received. And that we can share with the world around us. And the world around us begins right here with fellow believers. If our love is real, if it's strong, then we're going to have this love for one another. Because Jesus Christ will always lead us to have love for one another and for the world around us. In fact, the Bible says, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 1 John four, eleven. And so it is, not, it is foreign to the Scripture to talk about how much you have the love of God and then to not have love for fellow believers. That is foreign to the Scripture. That's the first place that love ought to be clearly displayed. And then flowing out from all of us together, loving this world and the people who don't know Christ and need to come to know him. But it begins at home. It begins with us, with the house of God. We ought to be a a place and a people of love. Love one another. John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And so, if there is any consolation in Christ, if you've received Christ into your life, and then if there is any comfort of love, be of the same mind. And then he goes on, if any fellowship of the Spirit And this spirit is not just talking about, you know, she has a good spirit, he has a good spirit. Uh, It's not just talking about personality, but it's talking about the Holy Spirit, capital S. We have fellowship together in the spirit because when you receive Christ into your life, you receive the spirit of Christ. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live within you. And so every one of us who knows Jesus as Savior and Lord, we also have the same Spirit. We have the same Lord and we have the same Spirit, the Spirit of God. And that's why we can come together and love one another. That's why we feel like we're so much a part of one another, because we have the same Spirit living within us. That's why... Uh, many of you travel during the summer or sometimes even over the winter, you go somewhere, uh, you walk into a church to, while you're gone, uh, maybe people you don't know at all. But when you walk into that church, you almost feel like you're at home and you're, you're with total strangers, but yet you feel like you are, you have the same spirit. How can that happen? Because you do have the same spirit. Christians the world over have the Spirit of God living within them, and we are all part of God's family, and someday we'll spend eternity with Him in heaven. And so it is the fellowship of the Spirit that brings us together. The Spirit of God is trying to bind us together around what is important and not allow us to be d- torn apart and divided up on things that are not the central issue of what God has put us here to be and to do. The Spirit of Christ in us is the motivation, also the means by which we can have unity. The Holy Spirit that dwells in me dwells in you. The Holy Spirit of God keeps us from being just an organization. We as a church are not just an organization. We are a living thing because the church is made up of people who know Jesus Christ. And the Bible says we are the body of Christ. And so that's why the church is so different. We have things that we try to do that that go along with good organizational principles on things like uh, taking care of finances and those sorts of things. But the church is not just and organization. The church is a living organism, the body of Christ with Jesus Christ as the head of the church, and that's because of the Spirit of God who has made us alive in Jesus Christ. And the first fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, meaning what is the Spirit of God going to try to produce in you and me? The first one named is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But right at the top is love. And so this is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us and produce through us. And we ought to want to be unified because this is what the Spirit is trying to do. And if we are working against being together with other believers and serving Christ and doing what's best for the whole, for the body of Christ, we're working against what the Spirit is trying to do. And then the fourth thing mentioned here is essentially mercy and compassion. I would say the mercy and compassion of Christ. Christ. If any affection and mercy, he says. If you have any of these things, we know Christ had compassion. In fact, he is described as looking out on the multitude. And what does it say? Jesus was moved with compassion for them. We ought to be moved with compassion. And part of the motivation for why we want to be unified together is so that we can effectively serve people, effectively minister to people. When you think about it, every single pew here today, as you sit on these pews, all the people, if we really knew there are great needs, great hurts, great pains represented in each life. And many of those things are things that no other person will ever know about. But God knows about them. And God wants to minister to all the needs of people through his church. And so when we have compassion and mercy and love, the love of Christ is living in us and flowing through us, then we may not even know we're meeting that particular need in the life of someone, but just by showing them love and compassion, caring for them, wanting to know how their life is, being there for them, God may be meeting some great deep need that only he knows about. I'm confident that's happening. And I I thank you for being a church that loves people. I have seen that. I have seen that not only here, but in what you do outside the walls of this church. And things that other people will never know about that you go and do. The calls you make, the visits you make going to visit people in hospitals, sitting with them during surgeries. All of those are things that God uses to show compassion and mercy, the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ. And it touches people's lives in a very deep and meaningful and practical way. This is who we are to be as the people of God. And that's how we can be unified together when we allow those motivations wanting to honor the name of Christ, wanting the love of Christ to be evident in us, agreeing with the work of the Holy Spirit in fellowship and bringing us together, and then in showing the mercy and compassion of Christ. This is how we can be the church, the people that God wants us to be. And so most of that has nothing to do, see, with how much head knowledge you have, and the, the method of worship. There's so much emphasis that's put on, you know, well, how does this church worship? And what kind of music do they have? And what kind of preaching? Does the preacher just wear blue jeans and a, and a flannel shirt and uh, carry a cup of, cup of coffee out when he preaches? Well, that's the kind of church I want to go to. Or does he wear a coat and tie? Well, that's the kind of church I want to go to. That, that's, that's not important. What's important is, These things that are mentioned right here. It's the same Lord, the same love, the same spirit that we have, and the same compassion and mercy that we have received we want to show and share with the world. That makes us the church, the people that God wants us to be. And that's what we must strive for. That is the motivation for unity. And then the method, there's some things we must do that are specified here by Paul. Now, remember, only because of the, the Spirit who lives in us and the Lord that we all have trusted and believed in, that only through that can we do these things. But there are some things we need to do because the Lord is motivating us. He's, he's uh, leading us to do these things. The question is, will we do them? He does give us a say as to whether we will cooperate with him or whether we're going to work against what he's trying to do. Look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And that's why then later in verse 5 he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we'll look at that in more depth next week. But one mind means that he wants us to think together the same thing. The one thing. He wants our mind to be in union with the mind of Christ. So that what we're doing here, he is the head, right? He's the head of the body. Then we ought to be moving at his command. Whatever he thinks. Whatever he desires. That's what the members of the body are supposed to respond to what the impulses are from the head, from the brain, from the mind. And so it's the mind of Christ that ought to be leading us and directing us, not our own desires, not not what we think is best. But it ought to be what he is leading us to think and do and to act upon. One mind. And if that's not the mind of Christ, there are going to be problems. And so we have to make a decision that we want the mind of Christ to control our mind. We have to give ourselves over to him. And to put aside our own agenda, our own desires, and let the will of God become our will and our purpose. And that then happens with humility. Humility. Now, humility is not a word that people tend to like, and many times it's got a really bad rap. People think humility means weak. No, it doesn't mean weak at all. It really means that you're surrendered. You're surrendered to Christ. He is in control. You have humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God, and you're letting Christ now live through you, be in control of you. And we are called to humility. Notice that he says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The Amplified Bible translates that verse this way, Do nothing from factional motives "...through contentiousness, strife, selfishness, or for unworthy ends, or promoted by conceit and empty arrogance. Instead, in the true spirit of humility, lowliness of mind, let each regard the others as better than and superior to himself, thinking more highly of one another than you do of yourselves." I think that's amplified. I don't think they could have put another word in that if they'd tried. That's the amplified description of that verse. The Phillips translation says, Never act from motives of rivalry or personal vanity, but in humility think more of each other than you do of yourselves. That's more concise, and I think it really hits at the point. Weist says, doing nothing impelled by a spirit of factiousness. Faction. Rivalry. As the other translation said. That's because the word that is used there, selfish ambition. If you look in the old King James Version, it uses the word strife. Strife. And that has also been translated as a party spirit. And that it's hitting at the idea of... Well, I'm a Democrat. Well, I'm a Republican. I went to this school. It's better than your school. This is my class. It's better than your class. It's this dividing up. And whatever you think and whatever you do and whatever your experience has been, well, it has to be better than everybody else. And it's this spirit of division, of faction, of party that is not what God wants among us. He wants us instead to have lowliness of mind where we're not always in pride and arrogance pushing ourselves and our ideas ahead. We're instead willing to say, God is at work among all of his people. And though I may have more education and I may have what I think is a better experience than this other person, you know what? God lives in them just like he does me. And you esteem others better than yourself. This is the spirit of Christ and what he will produce in us. Some of the, the, the most wonderful people I have experienced in my life are people with great amount of education and learning. But they are people who had such a humble spirit. They weren't always you, you would have never known in the way they dealt with people that they had all this experience and they had all of this education because they just loved people and Christ was living and loving through them. And you know what? All of us are equal at the cross. And when Christ forgives us and comes into our life, he can use us no matter what the past has been. And so this spirit, the spirit of God, will produce humility in us. Paul dealt with this in the Corinthian church, too, in 1 Corinthians 3, 4. He talked about how some would say, I am of Paul. Others would say, I am of Apollos. No, that's not the attitude for us to have. Instead, we need to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. We're of Jesus, all of us. And that is what motivates us, and that attitude is what will enable us to reflect the power of God in this world. Warren Weersby uses the acrostic joy, J-O-Y, and he says J stands for Jesus, Jesus first, others next, the O, and finally Y for yourself. Jesus first, others next, yourself last this is what Paul is allowing God to lead him to write God motivated him inspired him to write this perfect word to us and all churches for all time that we are to have lowliness of mind not doing anything out of a sense of rivalry or party spirit but rather for the good of others, and for the good of the kingdom of God. How do we do this? Well, just refuse to cause strife. Don't do anything out of, out of a party spirit, out of, out of selfish ambition. Just refuse to do it. Instead, say, I want what Christ wants, and the whole is more important than what I want for myself. Just refuse to do anything to cause strife. That's a decision of the will. Nobody can make you be that kind of person. But the Spirit of God will help us to be like that if we allow Him to. Refuse a proud spirit. The word conceit here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. It really is the sense of pride. Proverbs 13.10 says, Only by pride cometh contention. And so when there is contention and when there is division, and when there is strife, where does that come from? It comes from pride. I know better. I'm smarter. I need to have my way. On and on and on and on. That's what pride does. And pride, the scripture tells us, is not what Christ would have us to be motivated by or controlled by. He wants us to be controlled by his love by this humble spirit that yields to what Christ would say. Just refuse to have a proud spirit. And then thirdly, embrace humility. Lowliness of mind. This lowliness of mind that the scripture talks about here. One writer has said humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's, thinking of our, not, it's not thinking of ourselves at all. It's not thinking less of ourselves. It's not thinking of ourselves at all. See, we we sometimes struggle with, well, how do I just think less of myself? Well, just stop thinking about yourself. Think about the kingdom of God. Think about Jesus Christ. Think about the gospel. That ought to be what drives us in any situation we face as to what we ought to do. Let Christ be glorified. What was it John the Baptist said? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what John the Baptist said when Jesus came on the scene. So if Jesus is on the scene in your life, he must increase. I must decrease so that he can be the Lord of all. That's who he is, and we ought to recognize that. Humility. C.S. Lewis made this insightful and prophetic comment. He said, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. And pride comes when we're always comparing ourselves to other people. And letting that drive a wedge between us. God would have us to only look at Jesus himself. He's the only standard. And when we look at him, we all can see that we fall short. And it's our responsibility to humble ourselves before him. And when we humble ourselves before him, we will love others the way he loves them. We will show compassion the way he shows compassion. The mind of Christ must become our mind. I I close with a story about William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army. The story goes that they were having a great convention. He was not there. He was sick. But they wanted the old leader to come, and because he couldn't come, they sent word to him. By telegram. Please send us a response. Send us a telegram. Send us something that we can read to the people who had assembled for the convention. And he did. He sent a one word telegram. One word. And that one word was Others. Others. And that got the point across. Christ has put us here as his people to live for him. And as we live for him, we're going to do what he wants. And what did Jesus do when he came? He cared about others. In fact, he said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. And if Jesus, who was sinless and perfect, if he came and put others first, not himself, How in the world as Christians can we go through our life putting ourselves first? It's so foreign to the gospel. The mind of Christ would say others. Because those others need to know Jesus. The way we are privileged to know him. We sang that song, the choir did earlier, Others There's probably not another church in North America that sang that song this morning. I would guess that, and I bet it's true. And I told Stan before the service, I had I had in my sermon notes before Wednesday, I'd run across the words of the chorus of that song. I had them at the end of this sermon, and he picked that song for us to sing, the choir. And we had had no discussion about it. How does that happen? The same spirit the same Lord. And what were the words of that chorus? Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, for your presence in this place, for your presence in us as your people. And we thank you for this strong word that you inspired Paul to write that challenges us to put you and your kingdom first. Lord, thank you for the the wonderful people here. I have seen this lived out among the people of this church. Help us to only continue and increase as we seek to put you first, and in putting you first, putting others first. Lord, forgive us for the ways we have fallen short. And when pride has arisen in our hearts and the damage that that has caused, Lord, forgive us. And I ask you to forgive me as a pastor for the ways I have fallen short. We want you and you alone to be the head of this church. So, Lord, we pray going forward that we might truly demonstrate every day and in every way your grace and love and power. The same Lord, the same love, the same fellowship, your compassion and mercy. Help us to be what you want us to be, to your honor and glory. Now, in these moments of invitation, Lord. If there are other kinds of decisions you'd have us to make, it may be a private decision to just say, Lord, I want to be that person described here. I want to be what you want me to be. Then, Lord, help us to be willing to, before you to make that commitment. There may be some who need to receive Christ as their Savior. Help them to come. I'll be glad to pray with them. There may be others Lord, who need a a church home and you're leading them here. We just want your will to be done. We don't want there to be any pressure other than the pressure you bring, the urging of your spirit to follow your direction. So we pray that in these moments, you would increase and we would decrease. And may you shine in our lives. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.